episode 93, Mike Di Virginio. This is Matthew, and in this episode, Andrew and I host author and apologist Mike Di Virginio. Mike and I had a conversation on Justin Briley's premier Unbelievable podcast to discuss his book, Uninvented. See the show notes for links if you have not already listened to that conversation. In this conversation, we do not cover the same material as the conversation on Unbelievable. So if you appreciated that one, you will also appreciate this one. I would like to thank Mike for being gracious and coming on. We do try to be welcoming to guests on Still Unbelievable, while at the same time giving Christianity just criticism. It's not always an easy balance, and in this episode, that difficulty became apparent, which always makes for an interesting editing job. I hope I have been fair. As always, all feedback to reasonpress.gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Still Unbelievable. Matthew and I had a virtual wrestling contest, and uh, you're hearing me first because I lost the contest. Uh, so that'll tell you that'll tell you how often I win because Matthew usually takes this uh, usually takes this role. So seriously, thank you for joining us today. We have an interesting show. For the second week in a row, we have a Christian author, and today. We have author and Christian apologist Mike D. Virgilio. And as always, the usual voice of Still Unbelievable, Matthew Taylor. Hello. Mike wrote a book, and a few weeks back, Matthew and Mike had a, a conversation on Unbelievable with Justin Priorly about Mike's book. And the show was intriguing enough to the three of us that we decided to get back together and discuss Mike's book, Uninvented. Uh, Mike, give us the full title. It's Uninvented, Why the Bible Could Not Be Made Up in the Evidence That Proves It. That is right down the center for Still Unbelievable. That last bit, the evidence that proves it, that's a really important idea. So, Mike, we heard a little bit of your background on Unbelievable. As we get into today's show, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, being Italian, there's good odds that uh, you grew up Catholic. So that's what we grew up. And pretty nominal Catholics, I would say, in the sense that went to church on Sunday, and that was about it. Until I was 18, went off to college, I didn't really see religion, for me, Christianity, really affecting your life. It was something you did on Sunday cultural, whatever you want to call it. And that's what Italian people did. You know, we had sauce on Sunday, <laughs> the red sauce, depending where you're from, it could be called gravy if you're in the Northeast. And you went to mass and then you came home and you went and did your thing. So, but I think it gave me a foundation for when I was confronted with the claims of the Bible unmediated through the church, I believed it. I accepted them. I believed what it told me and I believed in God. So there was no problem Although, if I could tell you something I think is interesting. So I was 12 or 13. And if anybody knows Southern California, I was born in L.A. itself and grew up in Whittier, where uh, Nixon was born, Hacienda Heights. So we had moved to Hacienda Heights, which is in the San Gabriel Valley. And one evening I went outside and I looked up in the sky. I have no idea where this came from. I, I mean, I can explain what, what I think now. But uh, looked up and I looked at the stars and I said, Huh. My dad was uh, when he was in the Coast Guard, he hitched a ride to come back home from Oregon 
the guy said, you can drive. He drove, got in an accident, boom, through the windshield, came this close to death. And I thought, wow, if my dad died, I wouldn't be here. And mind you, I'm 12, maybe 13. And again, just looking up. And then I, I sort of went on an infinite regress. If my mom's parents didn't come from Boston to Southern California in 1927, <laughs> I wouldn't be here. And et cetera, et cetera. And then my thought was, I must be a meaningless blob, protoplasm or something, because it's kind of all an accident. And so the way I describe that to people, if I'm, I, I was on a show last week telling my testimony, which I haven't done in a very long time, said that um, I had imbibed the worldview of secularism and the kind of Darwinian take on reality. And of course, if I'm just a chance happening, I can't have re really any ultimate meaning, which is a whole other you know, rabbit hole we could go down. But that's the way I responded. And so I liken what that was. And then several other things that happened I was as I was growing up, a book I read that my grandmother gave me in a, in a mini series I watched that the hound of heaven was kind of coming after me. And I was pretty reluctant, you know, because I like to party. It was the 70s, you know, that's what you did. It was your hobby. <laughs> Smoke pot, you drink, <laughs> and you go to parties. And so that was my upbringing. So, you know, I believed, I had the, the structure of belief there, but I didn't really buy it, what it was about. Did you go to public school? Did you go to a, a Catholic private school, some other private school, homeschooled, occasionally happens? Yeah, no, um, public school, which I resent now, but that's a long story. I'm a big fan of classical education. Well, I went to public school, which is how I would, there's something in sociology called plausibility structures. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the culture communicates what is real through, you know, everything that the culture does. And you have these, what seems real to you is your plausibility structure, or the structures are what seems real to you going to public schools, you get the plausibility structure of the secular world, that God, if, if God exists, it's merely a personal thing and, you know, has really no relevance to your life. And I imbibe that. When you talk about school, I went to CCD. So that's uh, catechism, first communion and, and the confirmation and such. And what I noticed was all the Catholic school kids were the worst kids. <laughs> this church, St. Bruno, that we went to in Whittier. It was just interesting because there was, again, this was like, okay, if religion's so great, Christianity's so great, why am I not really seeing much here? I don't, I don't get it. But yet, on the other hand, God was working, you know, as of course I see it, through to bring me to himself. And I can go a little bit more into that if you want. It's, it's up to you guys. Well, by all means, because it sounds like, if I can read the tea leaves a little bit here, it sounds like some of this is going to relate to experience, perhaps more than reading the Bible. Am I reading the tea leaves a little right here? Oh, I would say absolutely. Tell us more then, because I'm interested in the personal experience part. Okay, well, this, okay, this is definitely relevant. My grandmother, who was a solid, pious Catholic, although how does this actually influence your life? I don't. So anyway, so she gave me a book called The Robe, and it was about fiction about one of the centurions that was at the foot of the cross, and, and he, you know, gambled, they gambled for the, the robe, he got the robe, and it sort of transformed his life, person of Jesus and all this. And everywhere he went in the Judean countryside, because he couldn't maintain the facade of being this centurion, everyone would get better by the influence of this robe and Christianity on him. And I thought, wow, that's really attractive. Man, I'd like that. And so that's, you know, up here in the head. And then uh, in 1977, 
I think it was probably April, there was a miniseries called Jesus of Nazareth by Franco Zifarelli. He was the director. And it was, to me, incredible because the Jesus portrayed there is so, he's a, in my book, I have a chapter on the conundrum that is Jesus. He's just confuses everybody, his enemies, his friends, his family, nobody gets him, which is to me why, you know, as I look back, like, it'd be hard to make this guy up. I was just attracted to that. So, and then of course I went to mass every week with my parents. And um, so I was getting the Bible read to me there. They have homilies and the priest will do that and give a little sermon, short sermon, not like the Protestants. One day I was, uh, one of those Sundays, he was talking about Luke 18. If you're familiar with it, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go, you know, before they go to the temple and the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy, that loser tax collector and all that. And, and, and the tax collector can't even look up to heaven. He just beats his breast and says, Lord, have me in have mercy on me a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went away justified. And I thought, well, I don't know about this whole religion thing, pulling that off, but I can do that. I can be a sinner and beat my breast. And then uh, right before I went off to college, this is a hound of heaven thing to me, standing out at a party, having a smoke with a friend of mine. And this VW bug comes across the street. Guy in the back gets out, walks over toward us. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to shoot us or something. And he says, God told me to get out and come and ask you a question. If you died right now, would you go to heaven? I said, well, I'm a pretty good guy, I guess. You know, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't murdered anybody defense. And so I guess. And he says, that's not enough. He says, God loves you and he wants your all. God loves you and he wants it. I remember that. And he quoted John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. And, and so that's it. And when he said, God wants your all, my mind, Catholic mind, went to you become a priest or a nun or something. And for the rest of us, it's kind of whatever, part-time thing. So I went home and I, I thought, man, this guy must have, and this goes back to Andrew about experience. Why I thought this, I have no idea. I said, God must think a lot of me to have this guy come out of nowhere and tell me this. It's so bizarre. My other buddy's a heathen, no offense to heathens, but he said, what a joke, what a jerk, I'm out here. So I went home, I opened up the family Catholic Bible, which is gargantuan. Catholics generally don't, well, maybe nowadays more read the Bible, like Protestants. So I opened it up, I went to Matthew, I started reading, I got to Matthew 5:28, and Jesus said, if a man lusted for a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I said, I'm out, <laughs> no way. I'm a you know, hormone-addled teenager in the 70s. I just, I, I can't pull it off. Maybe somebody else or whatever. And that was my response to it. Mm. It didn't really affect me at all until I went away to college, which is kind of the continuation of the story. Please forgive me, Mike, but I'm clearly in one of those moods today. The way my mind went is that guy got out the bus five minutes earlier. He just lost a bet. And and, there you go. He probably did. He probably did. And you were his penalty. Uh, uh, Well, I needless to say, I don't look at it that way. But hey, wager. Yeah. I mean, that's probably not the truth, but that was where my mind was going. No, I love (laughs) it. Sorry. So the way my mind went was the experiences that you've relayed to us so far. Because right. uh, I, I recognize that life is full of experiences and there may be plenty of others that you haven't talked about yet. Sure. The experiences that you've relayed so far, do you see any of them as 
fitting into the mold of signs or wonders or miracles in the way that you might have seen water into wine at the wedding, as a for instance? Or do these things seem very much more providential? Uh, oh, providential. Okay. I believe life's a miracle. The, 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 you know, this human cell's a miracle, et cetera. So, and that God is omnipresent and omniscient. And it blows my mind that he even cares about me at all. How I look at it is he created me. There's that. And he died for me. And I don't know how familiar you guys are, or your listeners might be, with Reformed theology. So after I got out of college, I became a born-again Christian, which we could talk about. But I became a Calvinist, basically. And uh, God, Jesus was given his name in John in Matthew 121, the angel said to, to Joseph in his dream, and he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's going to be named Jesus. So I was one of his people, and he was going to have me. I didn't want to be God, <laughs> but as, as I can c- convey to you in, in, you know, in the next step in the story. I'd like to pause just a little bit yeah, on okay. that experience that you mm-hmm. had just, just briefly and sure. and relate, and because that clearly was very impactful for you. And I'm thinking about me, there was certainly a time in my life when I was a Christian where a similar experience would have been very impactful on me. But it it would very much depend on what part of my life that was. If it had been in the last 15, maybe even 20 years, it would have had almost no impact at all. Sure. And if I was a teenager, probably zero impact either. But so there was that period from 20 to 30 where it would have had an enormous impact. Mm. What kind of window of your timeline was were you susceptible to that kind of message? Well, see, that's an that's a great question. I still am. Okay. I mean, everything that happens in my life, every every minute, every second of every day, God is involved, even in the most trivial, stupid stuff. Because first of all, He's God, so by definition, He can do that. Right. <laughs> it's incomprehensible to us, right? That God, anyway, it's just so mind-blowing to me, you know, with my job and stuff, and I bring it to him because I found out through my four-plus decades, we'll put it there, of being a Christian, that my biggest sin is not trusting him. And I'll quote a verse for you. It's Romans 8, 28. Paul says, God works together all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But our tendency is to view circumstances as sovereign and not God, and God not using the circumstances to make us more like his son to sanctify us and so on and so forth. So it's literally everywhere. It's hard to explain, but it's uh, it's beautiful because everything it gives everything you do purpose and meaning. And he's constantly. And so every morning I repent of my doubt, fear, worry, and anxiety. That's kind of the big four. And I'm always like, Ugh. it's like, okay, trust me, trust me. I take care of it. I got your back. Not waiting for the you know the other shoe to drop. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I I see it only more intimately and dynamically now in the same way. Okay. Would you would you say then that that was a pivotable moment? Which one? Um, that 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 guy jumping out the the van. Well, yeah. In in a, if not God would have used something else, but I still had those previous okay. things that happened, right? And okay. so, but then what happened when I went off to college was kind of God showing off. <laughs> That's how I was. What, what do you mean? So I go to college primarily because my dad being. My Italian families were so interesting because my mom's side was the most laid back, specific, kind people. My dad's side of the family was every stereotypical Italian movie or TV show you've seen of crazy Italians. That was the side. 
it was, it was a trip growing up around, but I wanted to get away from my dad because he was kind of hard to, to live with sometimes. And so I went to Arizona state, which was like six hours away. And, uh, what happens, but I moved next door, best hall, 1978, August Two Jesus freaks. <laughs> it's like, okay. I didn't really take it that way at the time, but, uh, so that's great. And then they invited me to a Bible study um, about, and they asked me the very right question. They said, would you like to be in a Bible study about what the Bible says about who Jesus is? And I was like, you know, I, re- I read the robe. I read Jesus. I saw Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus intrigues me in addition to maybe what I heard at church all those years, but th- that didn't seem to impact. Me. And uh, sure, totally open to it. So we went through that. And then they showed me this illustration after you know, a month or two called the bridge. And you have, you know, like the Grand Canyon on one side, you have Jesus and God. And one side you have man, sinful man, and there's no way in between the cross is the way you walk across the bridge. And so when the guy said, well, so basically he quoted some verses and like, you could know you have eternal life. If, if you believe in you, I think it's Romans six ten. I forget. But uh, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will have eternal life. And I thought I wanted that because I didn't. This is another key part of the deal. I didn't want to go to hell. And uh, and I was just afraid of that. And so I said, the Bible really tells you that you could know. He says, yep, it's right there. And it was in English. <laughs> and so I said, oh, OK. And he prayed with me and I was so reluctant. I was like, oh, I felt like I'm being tricked and I'm scared because I want to party. I came to issues of one of the great party schools in the country and so I, I wasn't as C.S. Lewis was the most reluctant convert in all of England in Arizona, but I was reluctant. And uh, so that happened, you know, no bright lights or anything like that. I was miserable. And um, but my, the way my mind worked was that if this thing's real, that like guy said, God wants your all. If this is real, if this ain't some scam and whatever, I'm in. But ugh. and I just felt like God was hounding me through my experiences, you know, it's just like, okay. I even went away back home for a semester and uh, was again doing that. And and it just seemed like eventually I came to the conclusion it was real. No apologetics, no rational defense, philosophical, none of that. So you could say it was mostly experiential and then, you know, there's there's a certain power in it, you know, when you buy it. If you don't, it's like nothing. So we're definitely going to come back to this because for me, this is an important element of how some people walk away from Christianity. So this idea of experience, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us who were Christians in a previous part of our lives who are not now Mm -hmm. see experience in a different way. So So I want to come back here. That sort of assumes that it was only experience and that what I found after in the last 40 years, didn't confirm the experience. So that's why I interpret everything the way I do today, because it isn't merely experience. No, I'm not suggesting it is. Okay, yeah. but that's that. Um, it, it's but see, that's true of everybody in every endeavor in life, including people who walk away from Christianity. They have experiences too, and then they have an uh, interpretive grid, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's just human nature, in my view. Uh, of course. Um, but I would be I, curious to see what you actually. To flesh that out a little bit more and why yeah we're, we're going to get there i promise cool. uh and in fact Great. we share uh we share some background because uh oh. i did five years at a christian university uh, okay and i double majored 
uh, theology and community That's obvious. Science. That's sometimes a problem. We're <laughs> going to Christian well, school. Well, well, I'll tell you, that, what, that didn't end up being my problem. <laughs> uh, my point to all of that is, yes, it's not just experience. There is education, however you come by that. There's contemplation uh, about the things that we read or study. And so, but I do want to be very careful to not just count hits and ignore misses. Because How, what do you explain what you mean? I'm, I'm going to. Oh. There are plenty of people who go to Christian colleges right. who come out and think that it was the best time of their life, right? And so while Christian college may be a problem for some, there are plenty of people who go and are glad they went and who, in fact, encourage their children to go as well. And so my point there is that in order to assess whether Christian college was good or bad for someone, we'd actually have to ask the individual. Indeed. So go ahead. No, I just I agree. Yeah. So, Matthew, any thoughts to this point? Um, I don't I'm still tickling over the, the, the Catholic thing, if I may ask a question about that, because, Mike, you said something about the fear of hell or alluded to a, a fear of hell. So I don't know a huge amount about what Catholics preach or teach. Mm -hmm. What is the Catholic teaching on hell and where did that fear come from? And I'm just wondering what motivating factor that had to what followed next. Uh, well, initially a lot. I mean, initially that was like the only thing, only reason I'm praying and doing this, if it's going to ruin my life, <laughs> that's what I thought. Cause you can't have fun. If you're a Christian, you're going to be miserable and God wants you to be, you know, anyway. So, um, uh, so yeah, so that was really the only reason. And I think part of the answer to your question is in the seventies, now the Christian Christ, America was definitely secularized, but there was still enough left over from Christian Western civilization in the past that these ideas still percolated. You know, now we're in 2023, secularism is suffocating, as I would see it, suffocating, and it's everywhere. And so you're just not going to think of hell in the same way in the you know 21st, third decade of the 21st century, the way you might in the 20th, earlier mid 20th century. And I don't think it was talked about a lot in the Catholic Church. But the idea was that that I imbibed from it was you couldn't. So Catholics don't believe that you're saved and that's it. They believe it's called prevenient grace. And then God does a work in you and then perfects that through your life. So you, in a sense, are worthy of heaven. And Protestants are too often caricature what Catholics believe. And uh, and I don't like that because I became virulently anti-Catholic because they, they didn't tell me all my life I could know I was going to heaven. And then here they are. And uh, as I've matured and grown and learned, I very much appreciate Catholicism in a lot of ways. But I disagree with them theologically because I believe that there's a work of atonement on the cross, my sin for Christ's righteousness. And all I have to do is trust in him and believe. And I get his righteousness and the penalty that was paid is paid on the cross. And now I have a redeemed relationship with my creator. So, so Catholics, Catholics don't believe that. This work that some aspect of the Godhead does, using your words, God, God does a, a work in you. Mm -hmm. That work, as you see it, is that a miraculous work? Is this the kind of work where God actually 
changes the gears of the universe in a miraculous way to to bring you to some relationship with him? Or is this a providential work? Is it both? Is, is it neither? What What is this work? Because I hear this sort of language uh, quite often. And, and frankly, uh, even as Christian, I didn't understand. The, the language was far too loose. So this work that God does in you, what do you mean? So you mentioned supernatural and providential. I, I think that might be a distinction. From your perspective, a distinction without, well, it's a distinction without a difference, because what God does providentially is control all of reality. So the idea Well, I can tell you the difference from my religion. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Um, Yeah, sure. So providence, in the sense that my denomination typically meant it, was a working out ahead of time. As God puts his plan in motion from the beginning, there are certain providential acts that will sort of light the way. Separate and apart from that, there are miracles. God doing something instantaneously, raising someone from the dead, just as a for instance. Now, I realize that you can see those things entirely through one lens. However, there are religious traditions, and I come from one, that did not accept modern miracles. We came from an apostolic authority tradition. So when the last disciple who had hands laid on by an apostle died, Mm -hmm. that was the end of the period of miraculous spiritual gifts. And so if you come from that tradition, there is a clear dividing line Mm -hmm. between providential care and miraculous work. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes and no. I mean, that's a big discussion. So I disagree with a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters on all of this as well. Um, As it turns out, so do I. (laughs) <laughs> I kind of gather that, but uh, no, no. Uh, so, and I talk about this in my book, is that most Christians, most people, human beings, Christian or not, whatever, don't really realize that the miraculous in the Bible is rare, very rare. And the reason is, is that the miraculous, as we would understand the miraculous, God coming in to the natural order of the created world and doing something, changing things, whatever, are redemptive. So he comes in and says, this is part of my, we call it uh, the history of redemption, redemptive history. So those congregate around events like the Exodus. And so God came in, boom. He called Abraham. That was miraculous. So there's this period of time. And then probably the next 800 years, you just don't see a whole lot of that. Well, you don't see really any of it until Elijah and Elisha, probably in the ninth century BC or seventh century BC, something like that. And um, so, and then the next time is until another 800 years later when Jesus comes along. And then there's an explosion of miraculous. And then once the apostles had, they were, you know, they were continuing the message of Christianity. And so God needed to affirm their authority. So when you read the book of Acts, you can see what they did. Well, I can see what is claimed they did. Whatever. Um, I believe it's what they did. So that's the way I'm going to say it. And um, we'll get into that. Uh, sure. Sure. But but what I'm saying is that the idea that the, the miraculous is somehow ongoing in the same way, I don't believe that. Do miracles still happen? Absolutely. You know, that God can oh, no, okay. do whatever he wants and can. Does someone have the power to go on and lay a hands on somebody and that? I don't know enough to, to, to say, yeah, no, but 
theologically, I don't think that's what miracles are for, because he's given us so his word. I'm sort of in a place where I don't think I understand your response. Okay. And so here's why. Sure. It seems to me that if miracles are to provide some evidence of redeeming power, mm-hmm. there is no time in history that is not in need of redemption. If, in fact, there is a God who is not hiding and desires for every person to come into union with him. And as far as I know, uh, our population roughly increases by and large. It doesn't decrease. It seems that the need for a show of redemption cannot do anything but be manifestly required at any point in history. I completely disagree with your premise. And your premise is that the miraculous has to be a certain thing based on how you would define it, which is like Hume might have uh, defined it as against the, the laws of nature that we observe. And I think Matthew and I talked about that on Unbelievable, that it's basically empirical. That's the only valid definition of a miracle. Now, when oh, I was hold, talking... Hold, hold, hold. The only ahead. valid definition of a miracle is what? That it can be empirically, unless I got Matthew wrong, which I think that it can be seen and measured and somehow empirically verified as a, quote, miracle, unless I misunderstood him. Okay. So what miracle can you show me right now that can be empirically verified? No, but see, then that depends on how you define miracle. And I don't buy that only a miracle. And this gets back. If I I could just jump in and give a clarification. You're you're almost right, Mike. Uh, Given the God that does miracles, it's possible to have a miracle that I couldn't empirically measure. The problem is I wouldn't be able to know. And so my point about empiricalism is not that's what defines a miracle or not. It defines whether or not I am able to determine that it was a miracle or not. Right. I know it's it's a mild technicality, but that, that's well, the a, clarification it's, it's really, I'll give. It's an epistemological issue, right? What can we know and how do we know it? And I believe epistemology is fundamentally an issue of faith, which I'd love to talk about at some time. Well, we, but, we, can, we can get into that as we go. Because, okay. Um, we're epistemology geeks around here. <laughs> cool. So, uh, so you well, I mean, right. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I love the discussion of it. Good back to your question, if we've not gotten too far off, is that what God does in salvation is raise a person from spiritual death to life. And that's just incredibly miraculous. When you see okay, somebody go from death, I don't know death, what any of that means. It means that once you were dead in your sins, alienated from God, and now you have a relationship with God. You're no longer hostile, at enmity, at war oh, with oh, God. Okay, hold on. I'm gonna have to gonna have to slow your roll there. I get carried away. Um, well, no, no, it's it's okay. But you're painting at least me, and possibly Matthew, and and even more possibly everyone that doesn't believe the way you do. Sure. As people who are hostile to God. So let me be very clear. I don't accept that a God exists, and it is not, therefore, possible for me to be hostile to that idea. But we can go a little further. So you could read some atheists as being hostile to God, but I don't think that's particularly true. I think it's more of a straw man, because what many of us are hostile to is actually the move that you just made, painting us as hostile to something that we don't accept exists. Do you see the problem? Do you, do you see the straw manning that can go on there? Well, I think, see, so you're doing the same thing. Because you know 
Let me get an answer to that question first. Sure. Do you see the straw manning that can go on there? Uh, it all depends. On if I'm doing the mean. same thing, the answer must surely be yes, right? It all depends what we mean by hostile. You use the word. So you use the word. So you tell me what you mean. Hostile is a very, um, it's a loaded word, but it's a biblical okay, word. Okay, but you used it. So <laughs> tell me what you mean. Right. It's a biblical word. So what I'm taking is not my ideas. I didn't make this stuff up. Because Paul says we are by nature objects of God's wrath. We are at enmity, and the Greek there is at war with God in our nature. Okay, but if there is no God, we're certainly not war, at war with it. It doesn't matter, well, right? It doesn't. Surely it does. Well, no, if the God doesn't exist, this is Pascal's wager. Yeah, what have I lost? Uh, no, okay, we can get into Pascal's wager, but you're avoiding. Well, I'm, you're no, avoiding I'm not avoiding anything. So if God doesn't exist, it must surely matter. Because if there's no God, then Paul cannot be right that we're hostile or that we are in some way subject to God's wrath. That must surely matter as a foundational idea. You would have to defend the lack of God's existence to me. Often when I pray, I I have a hard time believing there's an invisible reality that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. A lot of this stuff just is hard for me to believe because I can't see it. But as I talk about in my book, there's this idea of the consideration of the alternative, that if I don't believe in Proposition A, I must believe in Proposition non-A or B. Yeah, I read that in the introduction. Yeah. But uh, that's, to me, that's how, I, that's how I process it. That's fair. I, so I disagree with that epistemologically. I don't have to be committed to A or B to ask questions about A or B. Of course. I agree. Okay, good. Absolutely. Uh, But I'm not convinced that the non-theistic view of reality has any plausibility whatsoever. That's, I I can't go there. That's too much. That would be a leap of faith. Okay, but that's just naive realism because you can't imagine it. It must not be true. Whatever. Nobody can, can, this is, again, me speaking. I can see nothing that would convince me that God doesn't exist. Whether the Bible and the God of Christianity is true, that's another question. There's no God. I don't believe everything came from nothing for no reason at all. I would that's have not, to believe that. Okay. That's, that's not true. Manning. No, it's not. Okay. And, so and where, where did everything? Manning. Okay. Where did everything come from? That's where I would want well, to know. We, as a matter of fact, we've got some great shows on this. We have a friend of Still Unbelievable, Scott and Phil. He is the recorder for the Royal Astronomical Society. What's it called? And the, the Royal Astronomical Society. Okay. It's all those astronomers and cosmologists, just just Mm -hmm. those guys. Mm -hmm. We actually did quite a long show with Phil on the origin of the universe. And I encourage you to go and listen to it, because right now what you're doing, I promise you, is this idea of nothing is straw manning the best science that we do. I'll give you just the leading model for our universe's existence at the moment. And that's loop quantum cosmology. Let me encourage you to go and do a little research on loop quantum cosmology, because we really can't have an intelligent discussion about the origin of the universe if you haven't 
consulted the best minds of our time on what the best model for our existence is. But I will tell you, and the listeners can go and listen to the show for themselves, cosmologists and astronomers are not arguing from nothing. Okay, now, that said, the usual epistemological approach to the idea of evidence is that in order to come to the knowledge of some conclusion, we have to have evidence to back the claim. Do you agree with that? So if I said to you that 90% of dishes made in Lithuania are savory and 10% are sweet, we could evidence that claim somehow by surveying Lithuanian food. We could make a test. We could see whether the evidence backed the claim. Do we agree there? Absolutely. Okay. How do you evidence the claim that a God exists? (laughs) So the evidence is I look outside my window. Intelligent design. I know that's supposedly not science. I mean, you can take this for however you want, but the complication, the complexity of the universe, I mean, it's infinitely complex. The human cell uh, is an information powerhouse, and there's trillion, trillions of them in the, in the body. To say that, so I don't know your quantum mechanics stuff. I'm not sure that would really explain anything other than the question going back even further. I mean, I all of this, I, did, I didn't mention. I'm sorry. Mechanics. All of this would have to be an accident. That's no. how I look at it. Okay. Well, you would say no, but where, where, where does the, there's no design in the universe? Where did, if there is, where did it come from? How let's, did it get there? Let's talk about design because I think that's a worthy jumping off place. <laughs> First of all, you've argued complexity. Yes. And in general, schools of engineering don't teach complexity of design. They teach simplicity of design. And so the intelligent design argument and the irreducible complexity argument get off on the wrong foot uh, in, in regard to any sort of modern engineering. Because when we go to build something, um, a bridge, as a, for instance, we don't try to make an infinitely complex bridge. We certainly could but it's poor design. Why is it poor design? Because the easiest way to build a bridge is the simplest way possible to get the job done, and it's also the most reliable. So when you talk about intelligent design and irreducible complexity, I think you're on the wrong foot right off the bat. Simplicity is the hallmark of design, not complexity. Okay, so you say? Well, it's not just me. I mean, you know, so... But if if you're going to respond, you know, I've I've laid out a foundation for my approach Mm -hmm. to epistemology. And what I've gotten in return for that foundation is, so you say. I'm not sure that's a substantial response. You have certain presuppositions that you come to the evidence with. Okay, what are my presuppositions? Well, that there's no God. That's not what I've said. Well, you said you don't believe in God. So somehow no, that's you, also you found not what it. I said. <laughs> well, I tell said, me what you I, said. I said I, I don't. You, you said, I said that I don't accept that a God exists, and what that means is, thus far, I don't see the evidence that backs the claim. And we've gone through quite a little back and forth 
And what I asked you to do was evidence your claim that a God does exist. And you then introduced complexity. And I responded to complexity with simplicity. That's how we got here, as I recall. Mm -hmm. I don't know about simplicity. I don't know about the engineering in, in that. But to say that the human cell is not complex, that it's not, I, I, I don't know what you're saying. When you look at the human body, the immune system, does that not evidence if something I can, that's incredibly complex? I don't understand you then. I can, I, can I uh, try, try and uh, <clears throat> do my best to simplify this, Andrew? I think what Andrew's point is, is good design is simple design. So when we look at the cell and we see something that, yes, is admittedly complex, the point that's being driven at is a fabulous intelligent being that could bring the cell into existence why was a complex cell the only way to do it the complexity seems more akin to a process that is arrived at chaotically rather than intelligently designed yes indeed i'm just i just don't see that what i'm trying to get from you though is not putting you on the back foot what i'm trying to do is to get you to evidence your claim as thoroughly as I'm willing to evidence my claim. I don't believe and, and so here's And so here's what I mean. I can show you things that look like they were designed, and we can contrast them with things that don't appear to be designed. That's an easy job. We've just done it just now. But if you are saying that the universe has a designer, a capital D designer, then I'm trying to get from your claim that there is a capital D designer to the evidence that there's a capital D designer. And you agreed a moment ago that evidence was important when we make our claims. Yes, but it sort of depends on how you define evidence. And it's, Okay, it's, well, you define it. Well, I mean, so my experience is in evidence. Hold on, hold on. Your experience is in evidence. Is not evidence. Oh, I agree. Well, you agree. I don't. I don't. I don't believe that. I believe that my experience is indeed evidence, as is history and archaeology, the Bible. We could talk. We can go down the rabbit hole of God and simplicity and, and, and such and such. I'm not an apologist. I'm a sales guy. That's what I do for a living. No, it's true. And, and like I said, I don't. I'm not trying to get this to turn a servant. I'm genuinely interested. So I accept, for purposes of this conversation, that. Your experience counts as evidence for you, but I doubt very much that my experience counts as evidence for you, because if it is, you wouldn't be a Christian. You see what I mean? And so when we yes. talk about evidence and epistemology, for us to have any hope of sorting out the middle ground and arriving at some truth that we can both at least semi-objectively agree to. We have to find things that are independent of mind. We have to find that external evidence that we can both look at. And then we have to find some genuine set of tools that gives us the best chance at evaluating that evidence. Now, that is what I am attempting to do now. I have pointed out that simplicity is a hallmark of design. And that's just one bit of this. And so my skepticism is actually rooted in 
our current notion of cosmology. As I mentioned, it's rooted in a fundamental disagreement with intelligent design and irreducible complexity. And I'm hoping that we go on. So today, if you disagree with me that the things I see are not evidence of your God, what can you show me independent of your mind, independent of your personal experience? What can you bring for us that helps us get where you are. I don't think that's really possible. I mean, I remember talking to somebody who didn't see the world as I did. And I said, you know, we're basically having uh, warring assumptions because I believe there is no such thing as an unbeliever that all people live by faith because we're finite creatures. So you talk about engineers and, and as physicists, or astrophysicists or whatever, and you don't know everything they do but you trust them. It's authoritative, right? Oh, no, so, no, no, so, so let me, so you do, hold on. Let, let me just answer you before you paint me with a, uh, any more of that brush. Let, let me just answer you straight. I only accept, I only accept the positions that I hold to the degree that I understand them. And so what I mean by that is that it's, it's possible, likely, in fact, almost certain that someone like Sean Carroll is smarter than I am. And he certainly sees the universe through a sharper lens than I do. That doesn't, however, mean that I depend on his view. I only depend to the extent that I'm capable on my understanding of his view. Why? Because the things that I can't understand cannot epistemologically be things that are sound for me to reason from. And so if you ask me whether I have faith in something, it is faith used in a very specific context. And that is the faith to which something is reproducible or observable. And that is the only way that I use the word faith. That again goes back to empiricism. And that is an article of faith you trust. To me, I define faith as trust based on adequate evidence. So my evidence for Christianity has many facets to it. I mean, apologetics has been around for 2000 years. So it doesn't just depend on one facet of evidence defined narrowly as empirical. Well, so, give me the non-empirical evidence. Well, uh, look, the Bible. You, you've the Bible defined is, evidence as empirical up to now. But if you're no, talking about no, no, it depends how you define empirical is something sort of measurable, scientific is something you can visually. You've said several times about separate from your mind. I forget the exact phrase you used. Independent of, of. Independent, independent of your mind. Of, yeah. So you believe that's possible. The idea of empirical, it means that your mind does something to process that data, that information. That requires faith, because it seems to me you have a, an extreme rationalism, very extreme, that the only way is that you think through as if your thinking is somehow autonomous, neutral. It only perceives what actually is. There's no underlying motives or inclinations of your heart, as we as Christians would believe. None of that. It's just somebody, <laughs> James K.A. Smith had this phrase, brains on a stick. My assumption is that human beings are not brains on sticks. We don't just perceive things 
empirically as if there's just this dispassionate knowledge and it can only be one way proved, etc. So you and I are on different planets, how we perceive and understand and think of these things. Because I'm telling you, everyone requires faith. Even your empirical understanding of something requires faith that reality is actually there. A solipsist uh, would say, uh, no, I, you know, so we just have to go on faith that we actually exist and these things are real that we're talking about in physical reality. That, that's faith. So if the argument that you're making is, well, it's just faith that God exists, then I'm on equally solid ground to say <laughs> that faith that he doesn't. But you're wrong about the notion of belief as I think of belief. So I would appreciate it as we go forward if you wouldn't lay accusations on me. I'm not doing that to you. Let's well, be a little more generous yeah, yeah, yeah. with each other. Oh, let's just be a little more generous with each other. Well, I'm generous, but you're taking it as offensive. Just like the first but, thing out of the gate that uh, that uh, Matthew said when we were on Unbelievable was he took offense at my labeling in the book, I talk about question-begging anti-supernatural bias. Okay. And he didn't let's, like the fact that I call it a bias. Okay, let's call it my fault. Let's move on to the thing we're trying to discuss. Let's talk about belief. There's a difference between belief and knowledge in the epistemological universe that I think is most reasonable. When we talk about belief, uh, the things I believe that we are talking about here, whether there are underlying reasons that I don't have access to, the same would be said of you. You have underlying reasons for your belief that you don't have access to. So we can reasonably discard both of those and we can talk about the things that we think we do have access to. If the universe that I believe that I observe is just made up in my head, that's fine, but I still have to respond to that thing that is in my head. And so do you. So when we talk about the things that we believe, I think in this case, I am asking for something that is substantially producible. Why? Because things that are substantially producible are the things that, as far as I can tell, are most likely to be correct. So I could imagine, as a, for instance, unicorns or pixies, and that doesn't do me any more good than imagining some other god. So when I ask you for something objective, I am, in fact, asking you for something that I can hang my hat on in the same way that you can yours. Which is fair. So to me, creation and its complexity is, and the design and the purpose in it is evidence. And you say, well, no, because simplicity and design and whatever. So we look at the same evidence and we come to different conclusions. So I look at that, I look at this, uh, this acorn I have, and I keep it here because big things come in small packages. And in this little acorn is an oak tree or can become one. And I, I just see God's handiwork in seeds and things that go in the ground and produce things. So that requires faith as I believe as much as yours does, that you have a certain way of looking at things and you're inclined to believe things this way or the other. And again, we're going to just be on different planes because there's plenty of evidence. I mean, there wouldn't be Christians for 2000 years if there was no evidence. And we could talk no, about that's, okay, that's totally wrong. Totally wrong. Um, yes. There well, how's it there wrong? Are... Tell me what's wrong about it. 
this argument that Christianity must be true because there have been Christians for 2,000 years, there have been all sorts of people that don't believe the Christian story for much longer than the Christian story has been around. That's, that's why the claim on its face is false. Now, you might say, but, but Andrew, surely the fact that so many Christians are around, maybe, maybe that's proof. Well, no, that's, that's actually an appeal to popularity. That's not and, the argument I made. I didn't say that. Okay. We, uh, did I misunderstand you that you said Christianity has been around for 2,000 years? It must be true. Did I misunderstand that? If I did, I'm sorry. Tell me what you said. I didn't say that at all. I didn't please. say it must be true. I didn't say that. Did, those correct. words did not come out of my mouth. Okay, please correct I said you asked for evidence, and I said one of the many things that I would take into account is that it's been against all odds and against assault from every angle for many, much of that period of time, still exists. People find it plausible, persu are persuaded that it's true, and so on. So that to me is, so it's a cumulative case, you might say, that there are many of these things that to me appeal, as if you want to call it evidence, that they appeal that overall, when I take that, I take scripture, because I believe the scripture is, it's ingenious. And that it couldn't be embedded, et cetera, right? And, and these different things, experience, I believe science and the, the complexity of the universe and on and on. So there's many different facets of why I have faith. I trust that this is true. It's not just a leap in the dark. I think I have very substantial reasons or I wouldn't believe it. On the subject of why that's evidence, I will accept for you that that is evidence, but where we disagree is what it is evidence for. And what I would say is that is evidence that it is possible to convince many thousands, millions of people of that. But it's not evidence that the belief itself is true. And sure, the way I, I would and the way I would support that is other religions also exist. And so it is possible to convince multiple people of multiple belief systems. But none of that tells you the truth of any of those belief systems. Absolutely agree. OK, but Christianity is unique in that for let's just say the last 300 years and talking about the bible and uninvented well even since before that so you go back to 17th century you have spinoza and then you have ramirez and you have these people that are men that are questioning the validity of the bible and it's been on, under attack i call it a, in the book i call it a variable world war against its veracity for several hundred years nothing comparable has been done to islam or to uh, Buddhism or Hinduism. There's really nothing comparable, unless I don't know about it, but I know that Christianity has been under attack. Its book has been under attack. Its worldview has been under attack for a very long time. And uh, it's still standing. Now, that whether that's evidence or however you want to look at that, to me, that's powerful. Let me ask you a question. Do you speak any Arabic tongue? No. Do you speak Hindu or any of the derivative tongues of Hindu in India? You know the answer. Well, no, I don't. Yes, I'm, you do. I'm, I mean, you really you think I speak Hindu? I, yeah, you're making a point, so, so make uh, your point. Well, uh, let me just say that the university that I attended required a foreign language. So I don't know what you speak, Mike. My point, though, I'm, I'm happy to make it, is that I don't know what goes on in the Islamic community or in the Hindu community, but I do know this. The Islamic community has many denominations, much like Christianity does. 
And so it doesn't strike me as settled that they haven't been going through this same sort of discussion that you and I are talking about. The nature of Allah, I think, is in doubt in the Islamic community. To what degree, I don't know. But it's not because it's not. It's because I don't speak the language. But we're not talking about within the Christian community. Well, you said that for the last 2,000 years, Christianity has been going through an assault, and, and then you drew a comparison where it might not be happening in other religions. And then I asked you, okay, right, but do you speak Arabic? Do you speak any Indian language? And you got upset with me, and you said, I know the answer. No, I was, I was actually genuinely asking. No, no, I'm, first of all, I'm not upset. I'm demonstrative. That's just my nature. So it's fine. If it came across as that way, I apologize. I didn't say that Christianity has been under attack for 2,000 years. Uh, I said that, as well, but with the rise of the Enlightenment, you know, empiricism so, and rationalism, that it has been, it has. I mean, it's just, it's okay. been, that's why secularism has, has taken over Western culture and why we live in the world today where Christianity is not the you know, dominant thing that it was. At, so tell me this, because that was really interesting to me. Uh, there's, there's a, so it's actually a part that I wanted to get to. What tool of rational thought, what tool of logic or reason of science, technology, engineering, math, what tool of reason should we not bring to our questions of theology? I don't know if there would be any that we shouldn't bring. Then I don't think that it's fair to characterize the questions facing Christianity as a war on Christianity. If it is, in fact, reasonable for us to bring to bear on questions of the human condition, the best tools of our reason and enlightenment, then we're not actually at war. It's under investigation. I mean, that's a fair point as far as it goes. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. But when you look at the rise of the Enlightenment, and I mean, it's, it's a very complicated history in the long term. And, but once they accepted a certain view of reality, more as a closed system, Newton's physics, that basically the Bible, because this is kind of, you know, the book is about it was dismissed as history. And that began an assault, however you want to, you know, whatever words you want to use that's offensive or if war is offensive or whatever I said. It's incurred a, a crit- critical agenda to disprove it for hundreds of years and to prove that it's not true. And that I do not believe that's true of other religions. I could be wrong, but I don't see any of that where there has been a distinct, this is not what it says it was or what it claims it is. And then I just don't see that otherwise. Dismissing other religions, because I don't think we're going to get any traction there. Mm-hmm. And asking the question, let's just say that you're right. And by the way, I didn't use the word war. I was I was the one actually turning down the temperature and saying, let's be more generous to both sides. And let's just do the investigation and let's forget about the emotional framing, right? But phrase it however you want, that's not what I find interesting. What I'm more wondering is we are under this investigation, we're under a war, whatever. But but let's say there's war against Christianity. Let's say there's a war against it. And you're right. All of these skeptical tools are just hypercriticism. Would that actually prove the Christian story? Because I can't admit that it would. I don't see that even if something is under heavy attack, that actually means it's true. In fact, oh, I, absolutely. 
Okay, good. So we agree epistemologically there that even if Christianity has been under attack for 300 years or 400 years or 2000 years or whatever, right. um, the attack itself says nothing about the truth claims. Right. See, but I could also, I would also say when you use, if we, if we expand what evidence means, to me, those things can become evidence in this process. What, what things is that? I'm sorry, I, I didn't try. Just, the, just the, 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 the cultural and social dynamics of these things over the centuries and how they've played out and who the players are and what their rationale is and so on and so forth, how the church has fought back. And these dynamics are very fascinating, interesting. And that's part of that whole story is something that's compelling to me. What, you want to call it evidence, you want to call it whatever. A lot of that's compelling to me that it is that Christianity has stood the test. Of course, not everybody buys it, but not everybody buys everything. Right. It's, conv it's convinced me. I had a thought, but it, it it has a risk of going off on a tangent, which wouldn't be helpful. So yank it back when when I'm done. But I understand what you're saying, Mike, but it, it does come with a rather sizable but, I'm afraid, because before I got involved in this aspect of, of my atheism and addressing Christian claims and uh, fighting the battle against the, the evil Christians, for lack of a better <laughs> phraseology, I did spend a fair bit of time battling against conspiracy theories because this was in the five years after 9-11. And quite often the language that they would use was similar language to what you've just been using. They would say, people are only attacking us because they're trying to bury the truth and we've got the truth. And whether what you're saying is a legitimate argument or not, the way it translates to somebody like myself is it sounds exactly like those weirdo conspiracy people. So my caution is you need to be really careful about using that language because you risk putting yourself in the same corner as those people over there. Well, I didn't make it up. So anything I'm telling you is I'm stealing from other people. And okay. as much as I could synthesize this, Christianity has been in the cultural descendants for a very long time and you know, hundreds of years, whatever. And there has been a contest to be more neutral. I don't know of those who are not Christians and those who are to fight for their respective worldviews because a worldview has consequences and implications for the nature of our existence and civilization. So again, I, you know, I took from my reading these kinds of ideas that there has been a war against Christianity. It's, it's yeah. hostility to Christianity. I certainly read it that way, but yes, I read I'm, it very different. I understand your reading mm -hmm. and I understand why that reading, because I think I was probably in the same place once myself. The way I now read it is the enlightenment sparked off a scientific revolution we finalize down what we probably now know as the, the scientific method we worked out a process by which we can test and validate things and that caused an explosion of knowledge of things that we can validate things that we can test things that we can learn and it's culminated in fabulous technologies that we've got and enormous experiments like LIGO over in the states or the large hadron collider over in Switzerland and its neighboring countries. And the way what you would call a war, I would call rigorous examination. So 
these this methodology, this scientific methodology that has revolutionized our world, we're now applying it to other things. How can we test this? How close can we get to an explanation of the tiniest particle? And we've found what we think is the Higgs boson. What can we apply this to the creation of the greatest particle of the universe? You know, how close can we get to a beginning if a beginning is actually a coherent word to apply to the way our universe became what it is? Sorry, you used that word again. And uh, now can we apply it to <gasps> shock horror, God? And can we investigate that? And so what you're calling a war, I call a systematic examination of how can we apply this methodology that has been so successful for everywhere else right. to something that we don't yet know. Yeah, the only place we would have disagreement is that everyone comes to the evidence, everyone comes to the assessment with certain presuppositions. They can't be escaped. And those are articles of faith, however you want to define that. Those are things that can't be proved. As oh. I because they're they're not all of us see reality in a certain way based on our experiences, based on you know, all the your past, Andrew's past, all of us. We come so there's a certain assumption that there's this pure, I talked about it earlier, your brain on a stick, that there's this certain pure possibility of assessing evidence for what it truly is, and that there's no competing motivations in the human heart that might taint how someone looks at that evidence. Yeah. Well, I, just, I want to ask two questions because there's two things there that, that seem to me to be really important. First is, it sounds like you're starting with the presupposition of God, that, that we all have certain presuppositions. And I'm not saying that it is. I'm reading you this way. So maybe maybe you're not saying this, but I'm reading you as presuppositionally supposing that there is God. And the other thing that you seem to be saying is that the skeptics somehow actually believe in God, even though they don't know it. Now, that sounds like a hedge you win, tells I lose. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Okay, folks. Well, thank you for joining but no, but the, <laughs> but no, but see, the first one, so again, I'm going to come from Scripture, because that's, I believe it's God's authoritative divine revelation to us, to man. And so Paul in Romans 1.20 says that from the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That, so you could call that an assumption. You can call that, but the biblical testimony that I accept by faith, because I believe there's plenty of evidence. I don't just assume it, but yeah, that's what I believe, that the creation is evidence for the invisible creator, his eternal power and divine nature. So does that make sense? I mean, yeah. I know you don't accept no, that. I understand but... where you're coming from. Uh, and look, I used to believe like you do, Mike. And I promise you, I was an intolerable jerk because changing worldviews hasn't changed that for me. I'm still <laughs> pretty much intolerable. I still jerk. love you, Andrew. Hey, it's all right. I'm, I'm on the same page there with you, brother. <laughs> so so here's, here's, I think, the problem that we're having and so I agree that we have in front of us evidence that there is a universe. The question then has to be, how do we use that universe to evidence anything else? I am not convinced that the universe evidences that there's a God. 
you are convinced that the universe evidences that there's a God. So we can reasonably just say, okay, we can't use the universe to convince each other. So I'm trying still to get to that place. I mean, you know, can we pray together right now? And your God, the one who is capable of miracles, the one who wants redemption in everybody's lives, the one who is not hidden, can we, the three of us, pray together right now? And your, and your God will step in and say, I now heal your heart. And here I am. Because clearly, whatever evidence there is, as, as you have said, Christianity's on the decline. And you've said that the, the universe, the, the, the world as we know it, is in need of redemption. It's always in need of redemption. In fact, God does the most miracles when the, when the world is in its greatest hour of need. I'm sorry, that's not a perfect quote from you, but we talked about periods in the Old Testament of miracles, periods in the New Testament of miracles. If Christianity is, in fact, on the decline, surely this is the moment where miraculous redemption is called for. So since Andrew, I did not universe, say Christianity is on the decline, just to be clear. Culturally, uh, what you said, you said culturally, uh, culturally it is, it is okay, on the decline. Okay. Although okay. Christianity as a religion is exploding throughout the world. In the West, that's a bit of a different story, as we know. But, okay. So, so uh, yeah, so I'm, it's not, I'm, it happy, isn't, to, I'm uh, happy to let you split that, and I'll I take am. it as read. Okay. Nonetheless, in my part of the world, which is where we're talking, and where you're talking from, and largely where Matthew's talking from, because we're from Western societies, and Christianity is on decline in Western societies, uh, surely that would matter to God and that he would want to provide some redemptive force. Right? So my point is this, and the question remains, how do we get to that redemptive force? That, see, that assumes a lot. I'm not assuming anything. I'm asking you a flat question. How do we get there? No, but your question assumes a lot okay. that a redemptive force is a certain thing that you would accept as a redemptive force that would convince you that this is true. Is that not? That's how I read what you say. Look, I am not trying to get involved in the cosmic dance. You have a claim of a God. Uh, and you if, have a claim if, of if, no God. No. No, you don't. Oh, dear listeners, I have no idea. I have no idea how many times I will say this in this episode. I am not claiming that there is no God. Okay. The evidence thus far presented to me does not evidence that there is one. Okay, so we disagree on that point. Yeah, I mean, mean, that's that's interesting. I mean. And so what I'm saying is close the gap. Now, what I hear in return is, hey, Andrew, maybe, maybe you really do want to believe in a God. But man. I can't tell you how to get there, and God may be putting up all kinds of signposts, and even though you want to, you can't recognize Look, it all sounds like smoke and mirrors. I am asking you, in the same epistemological way that I would ask you for directions to anything to get me from where I am to where you are. This isn't a great epistemological feat, Mike. If you asked me how to install Windows 11. So, sorry, folks, there was a Windows 11 discussion. Sure. If you, if you don't like me, it. <laughs> right. If oh, you ask me how to install Windows 11, I wouldn't say to you, oh, well, man, that assumes a lot. There's all of these precepts. I would just say, well, 
If you already have Windows 10, you sign in with your Microsoft account, you go out to the Microsoft Store, you buy Windows 10, you, uh, 11, you start the upgrade process, and when prompted, you enter the license key. And we'd be done. It wouldn't be a great epistemological feat. You put on the table there that somehow my goal is to convince you. You use the phrase that I'm out to get. I no, can't I just, convince No, I just want you to get me from where I am to where you are. I mean, if you don't want to do that, that's okay. No, you. I, see, I don't think that could happen. You know, <laughs> so this is a called a lose-lose. Because the evidence that, that I would assess as, you know, I would bring forward as evidence, you would reject. Because let's say, let's talk really about the Bible, and let's talk about the textual evidence for the transmission of the Bible. Sure. And how okay. much evidence that is. But, but that's evidence. You want evidence, um, that's evidence. Uh, so I would okay. go there. I would go to many different things. I would go to our archaeology for the historicity of the things that happen in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And so, yeah, sure. so those aren't sure. evidence? I probably have done as much book work there as you have. And I will just say. So, so uh, I come to a different conclusion. I, well, so having done that homework, I read Bauckham and I read Ehrman and I read Van Wagen and I read Adam Clark and Matthew Henry and the Gospel Advocate commentaries, the pulpit commentaries. And I read the People's New Testament commentaries. And I read Robertson's word pictures. And I've read Kyle and Dillich. And I can go on and on and on. And? About, about what that, I've read. Okay. So and, you've concluded from I all read of that. Josephus, it, 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 and I read the Church Fathers. And I read the counter-arguments. And the counter-evidence was at least as equally weighty. It certainly didn't lead me to conclude that there's definitely a God. Okay, that's fair. I mean, that's great. I mean, I've read the evidence, not as obviously as much as you and, you know, airmen and such. And I, I just find whatever I have read, I can't blow them off the top of my head like you, but I don't have that good of memory. But what I've oh, read has a lot of time with man. <laughs> I have, it's, I have spent a lot of time too. Okay. So I haven't come to the conclusion you have based on the, the data that's been presented to me. That's evident, but that's just one line of evidence because we can go on to the various different things that I see as cumulative and also assumptions. Assumptions I, are, go ahead. Matthew. Can I ask a question about the archeological evidence is that that has, uh, has come up. The, um, the challenge that I always have, or the difficulty rather, that I always have with the archaeological evidence is I'm very happy to accept the archaeological evidence as evidence of people living in that place at a point in history. And we can usually get to a fairly accurate time period of when those people lived. And yes, we can even marry some of that archaeological evidence to places that are mentioned in the Bible. The difficulty that I have is how do you get from that physicality of people having lived in a time when a book was written, sorry, or when papers were, where scrolls were written, which now form part of what we call the Bible. How do you get from that to the entity of God is concluded from that people lived in that time? See, that's a fair question, because I don't know if I argue completely inductively like that. You know, I'm not sure that pure inductive is like you can't, Come. So there's a whole, and I'm not one of these, but there's a whole 
a branch of apologetics called presuppositionalism. And you have to assume this in order the Bible's true, God exists, and so on. Yeah. I, I see the power of assumptions and that they are, everyone has them to one degree or another. Um, but again, I'm not a presupposition. I'm not really anything when it comes to the methodology. But I'm not sure how you, so for me, so again, I'm only speaking from my experience. When I look at the Acts or the Gospels, let's say Acts, and we talked about that in Unbelievable, and I, I read in the book um, that we talked about on the show that there are 84 different archaeological instances that Luke uses that are corroborated by archaeology and by history and by, you know, currents in the water and this kinds of stuff. And then so I go from there to this is a reliable historical document, and that could be a whole other part of argument, too. And that talks about the gospel and Christ risen from the dead because he was a companion of Paul, who he said, you know, you know what happened to the apostle Paul. And so all of that gets me and confirms for me God, because I, I look at I'm so I, I, I don't apologize. I look out at creation, I look at the sunset, I see God. So I don't need that kind of empirical evidence, although I could argue from design and complexity and those things, not very well, obviously, (laughs) because my knowledge is minuscule. But wow. And these things, according to my experience too, my life and the testimony and lives of many other people as well, I am compelled to believe. I can't help it. So that's why I, you know, I don't really ever seek to convince other people because my words have no power in themselves, which goes back to where we started. That is God who opens eyes. He does because Jesus healing ministry of healing the blind was that it's a spiritual thing. Man born alienated. God, Jesus says a man must be born again. And that's pretty supernatural. So I don't know if that answers your question of how I get to God from there, but it's kind of all a mishmash of all of these things that have brought me where I am. Yeah, I understand the road you've taken. It's it's not a road I feel like I'm able to take because sure. it's it's still Fair. for me it's that hurdle of stepping from something in the document that we can materially validate right to something else in the same document that we can't. And just because that bit there can be materially validated, that doesn't automatically mean that that bit over there is true. That's a and great if, point. And if I can't materially validate it, I'm still left in that limbo of how do I know if it's true? Right. That's a great point, because the argument is whether you buy it or not, you know, who knows. But uh, I do is that Luke is a meticulous historian. He wrote Luke and Acts. Even the non-believing, non-Christian scholars would agree. And so he is so meticulous with facts about like the 84 facts about all this stuff. Right. And then he talks about miracles in the same exact way. To me, it just it's a plausible connection that he wasn't making those up, which is part of the argument I make in the book. Why would he be meticulous about all of these details and then just make up the miraculous? That's how I get there. Whether, you know, that's how my mind goes. It's like, and I've read that argument and saying that seems that seems plausible to me. Yeah. Okay. That's how I get there. If I can give an example of something which which I think touches on what you're doing not to the same meticulous detail but touches on the kind of thing you're saying it's Suetonius the historian which Christians love to mention as well 
yeah. who talking about Caesar crossing the Rubicon. And there's this passage that you can you can do a Google search and find this passage sure. on, on the Internet quite easily. And he talks about Caesar camped on the river and then without breaking any kind of writing rules, using exactly the same phraseology, he moves straight into suddenly a man of great stature and beauty appeared in their midst and he stepped in the water and said the die is cast and that was taken as a sign to to go on and you read that and it goes did an angel just appear because that's kind of how it reads but the the phraseology doesn't change the writing style doesn't change but i don't believe that passage about somebody suddenly appearing in their midst who was great of stature and beautiful to look at. I don't believe that bit mm -hmm. for a second, mm -hmm. but I believe all the material bits around it. And it's sure. that template is the same template that I put on the Gospels. I'm very happy to believe the material stuff, the regular stuff. But then just because the same writing style is applied to something supernatural for lack of a better word it is a hurdle too far for me so that's the process that i use okay yeah yeah that's i mean that's interesting in yours and and uh i can see why you might do that from my perspective i take not just that i take the whole scope of redemptive history and the claims of the bible and and, and i also you know theology and how this all works out in history and there's just such a genius to it from my perspective because I did study theology, I went to seminary, but I you know, read a, a decent amount and uh, still do. And it fits. That's it's like, like Acts really fits with the rest of the story from Genesis, where you have the fall of, of man. And then God says to Adam and Eve, the, you know, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And that story of redemption that God doing this works its way throughout 1500 years of biblical history and to me the genius of it i, I know it won't convince because i don't i'm not really seeking to convince anyone but from our perspective that is incredible often when i say i thank god every morning for revealing himself in creation and scripture and christ and the scripture is to me even more po powerful than creation as as a revelation as this man wow because I can't believe it was all made up in the way it fits the theology and the history. And it's just beautiful. So I put that together. Does that make sense? I mean, in, in a lot of different ways, it's not just one thing. That's why having a conversation for a couple hours, like convince me, well, no, we can't, you know, not each other. Try to, my goal is always to try to understand the other person as best I can, because my words have no power. I mean, so, you know, to be fair, I can be convinced of a lot of things in an hour or two, as a for instance, the Scott O'Phil that I mentioned earlier. He managed to convince me in a, a, a usual, still unbelievable episode length, what we're doing here, uh, that I completely misunderstood the inflation aspect of cosmology, uh, inflation in the, early, in the early universe. And as it turns out, that has substantial consequences for my view of cosmology. And, and what models of cosmology uh, might be most reasonable. So to be fair, I can be convinced of quite, uh, quite big things just in a couple of hours. And I do think, to, to sort of counter what you said, I, I do think that words have the power to convince. No, I don't disagree. I, obviously they do. I'm, first of all, just not very good at it. 
again, I'm a, see, I'm not a professional. I, don't know. I, I enjoyed reading your book. I, I didn't come to your conclusions, but no, I, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, but, but I'm, again, I have to go back to assumptions and presuppositions, even though I'm not a presuppositionalist, is that from the biblical perspective, which is the perspective I embrace, is that the human heart has one of two inclination. I mean, it has an inclination to rebel against God. And so how one sees the evidence is not just, again, perfectly in a perfect, neutral, autonomous, uh, clean, rational way that you say, ah, now I get and accept it. That's an assumption that somehow our nature, we don't even really have a nature. We don't have a bent nature, which is what Christianity declares Judaism the fall of man, which is rebellion against God, which is why I use the word hostility. That's the story of redemption through the Bible. I'd like to talk about the presuppositions thing. Andrew, did you have something else to say? This will go along with it. One of the ideas of Calvinism is that there are some human beings that are born as vessels of destruction, that God predetermined them, in, in a sense, to go to hell. That's just who they are. They're vessels of destruction. So it sounds to me, and it, you don't have to answer this directly. This is the kind of thing that happens on podcasts. Somebody says something that sounds like a gotcha, so you don't have to answer it. But it sounds to me like what you're saying, Mike, is that anybody you can't convince or that someone can't convince, that, that ultimately is not convinced, if you will, because I don't, don't want to put the whole world on your shoulders, right? But, but whoever can't be convinced through some vehicle those are just the ones god intended for destruction that's not what calvinism believes so it, it so that's not to say that some calvinists don't believe that because if you read calvin in the institutes you don't get that from him if you read the scholastic kind of growth of scholastic understanding of calvinism into the next century into the 1600s and such i mean, you know, that becomes a thing, that there's people that are created specifically for that. I can't get into the uh, mind of, a, of an infinite, all-powerful being um, about what he does and why he does what he does. So I can't really defend him, because even the, the Arminians, so the opposite of Calvinist Arminians, and which was an inter-Calvinist reformed debate in the 17th yeah, century. I'm from an Armenian tradition, or at least Armenian parallel. Well, yeah, and so, so so an Arminian would say that's man's choice, but if he makes the wrong choice, he still ends up in hell. And so, to uh, me, God right. doesn't God, God doesn't get off the hook by man making the choice or God, because he still created that person, knowing he's on he knows all things, right? They would not have eternal life with him. And okay. so, we're going to come back to this because I want to talk about God and creation, but it sounds like you agree that there are, by hook or by crook, vessels of destruction. Matthew, I think this didn't go the way you were trying to lead it. So let me just step back and, and take this where you were trying to go. I'm sorry, I thought we were going to get there. <laughs> All right, then. Okay, quick rewind sound then. So the presupposition thing, please forgive me, Mike, because I find the, 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 and this is why I said what I said when we were on Unbelievable, the, the presuppositionalist position comment i react quite badly to it internally i might not mm -hmm. show it in my english face it is a bit of a trigger for me and i'm pretty sure that a lot of people who are similar to me will be equally upset by it so I, i'd like to 
to speak to that. I listen to an awful lot of science content. And when people are talking about a new discovery, let's go back to the Higgs boson thing, which made big headline news not that many years ago. Some of the science podcasts that I was listening to well-respected scientists who accepted the proposition and were excited about what the experiment, what the Large Hadron Collider was going to reveal. Even they were saying, oh, I hope they're wrong. I hope they don't get the result. I hope I hope it's all wrong. Because that was the God particle? Yeah, this is, is the, the God, part, okay. God, God particle. And the reason why they were wanting it to be wrong is that meant something new to discover. Because if you make a prediction and you're right, way job done, Nobel Prize, hooray, that's that's your that's your future made, re, retiring in glory. If you're wrong, it means somebody else gets a chance, mm-hmm. and everybody else gets something to do because suddenly people who've got money to spend on this kind of uh, science investigation have got have got money. So people aren't so tied to to these ideas. Yes, they presuppose that the idea was right, but they also hedged by saying, "Oh, it will be really really cool if it's wrong." So they weren't so committed that being wrong would be uh, an earth shattering disaster. Being wrong was always an option, as I said on Mythbusters, I think. So to take that back in, in into the subject and Andrew and I, both of us uh, and many of our listeners and many people who are on other podcasts as well, the path, our path to our position was a, a path of pain. We may not have had exactly the same shaped Christianity as yourself, but we certainly had a deep and firm and committed uh, belief in, in God. And the exit out of that was not a willful exit. It was a, a painful exit. We wanted to believe. We wanted God to be true. And certainly for me personally, my ex I call I usually say three years was my deconstruction experience from the very first painful doubts. I'm not just talking about the doubts a Christian will get during the course of any given year. I'm talking the first painful doubts to eventually admitting to myself that not only did I not believe, I probably could no longer believe. But it wasn't the I don't accept there was a God wasn't at the beginning. It it was at the end. The whole of that period was trying to find God, deeply trying to find God, doing everything I possibly could including getting up in the middle of the night and begging on my knees and many other things, looking at beautiful sunsets as well, reading the Bible, reading other people's commentaries on the Bible, talking to people usually online. And so that entire period was a period of deeply trying to grasp on to God, the presupposition of God, if it, uh, if you. So having gone through that and having experienced that, and then in the 15 years since I've been engaged in, in Christian discourse of, of varying levels. So to be told that I'm here now, presupposing there is no God, feels like, and I'm pretty sure you don't mean it this way, but it, it the way it lands to me, the way it lands in my soul, is it's a complete and utter dismissal of everything that I went through. Or, or that pain, or that fighting for belief, because I didn't arrive where I am out of choice. I didn't arrive where I am out of willful rebellion. I didn't arrive where I am 
because uh, I saw something better. None of those state statements are true. I fought against every single one of those. And I, I'm not alone with that. Many of my listeners will be nodding away thinking, sure. yes, that, that that's my journey, too. So while I will accept to a point that, yes, we have propos- uh, presuppositions, now I'll say one of my presuppositions is in order for me to believe something, I need to not be more than just convinced by it. I need something tangible that I can measure and replicate. It needs to be more than just something in my mind. It needs to be something that I can fiddle with externally, so to speak. So, yeah, that's that presupposition accusation is hurts and 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 it hurts deeply because it risks the complete and utter dismissal of all of my Christian experience. And just quickly to finish off, to go back to that science example that I gave you, I will very, very happily be convinced about something. And to prove that, three years ago at the beginning of lockdown, the beginning of 2020, my family and I went vegan. And we went vegan out of a choice following a conversation that we had with somebody who is an evangelical vegan. And Andrew and I had a conversation on the podcast. And afterwards, I had a conversation with my family. And we decided that his arguments convinced us and we would go vegan on the matter. And that conversion from being a lover of meat and cheese to a rejecter of meat and cheese had nothing like that same painful experience that I've just been describing to you. I believe now, I'll hold it as a belief, I believe now that animal farming is a moral atrocity. That is now the belief position that I hold. And I was convinced of that by somebody talking to me about it and by seeing what some farms do. And that conversion experience had nowhere near the amount of pain and the trauma that I've just described to you about about leaving Christianity. It was a, here is a claim, Matthew. Here is some evidence you can investigate. And this is what I think you should do with it. So I went to investigate it. And a month later, my family decided that we were going to go vegan. It's not impossible for me to go back the other way again using a similar process. And I can guarantee if I were to go back the same way again, it would also not be the same painful uh, experience. And, And I think that is the difference that I would say is between what I would term and some Christians will object to, but I would call it an evidential belief because of what I see around me and a a non-evidential belief in which I would categorise Christianity. I I get that that you wouldn't accept that, but that is how I would term those two things. And the movement from that belief to that non-belief is either something that you choose to do because you've been exposed to it like I have with veganism and something that you don't choose to do like my experience with Christianity does that help at all well yeah and it's not an accusation so okay when I so but even so, okay I, I understand it's not an accusation well it feels like an accusation so I'll believe right, but it, it isn't because okay it's no less painful up. though it, it's no less triggering and no less painful yeah okay I mean that's fair but but we all have assumptions and presuppositions and and when I talk about the hostility to God and those kinds of issues theologically, that is from the Bible. That's not my opinion. I accept what I think the scripture says about the human heart and it being at war with God. Because the Satan's tempt Satan's temptation to, to Eve was you will be like God knowing good and evil. You get to call the shots, 
you decide what's right and wrong, etc. So that is the history of redemption is who gets to be God. That's the Christian understanding. So wherever you come down or however you didn't get there or get there, these oops, these these theological points are are what Christians believe. And uh, and I don't say that what you went through wasn't traumatic. I mean, clearly, but it was never meant as an attack when I said any of that stuff, because you've heard the phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I. So that's how I feel. I'm, I'm, I'm a saved sinner. I didn't choose to be born again. None of us choose to be born. So I believe God saved me. Okay. And, uh, you know, and so, he gets all the credit and I get all the fault. <laughs> <laughs> so you know? I want to chase, oh, Matthew, I'm sorry. You may not have been in there. I don't, I'm not. Um, I don't know. I was going to jump onto the Adam and Eve thing about because uh, Mike raised it and I was going to ask whether it, he believes that's a literal truth or whether it's uh, an analogy. But if you were going to go somewhere nope. else, you go there. Literally right into what I had in mind. So please go right ahead. It, Mike just answered it's literal. OK, so that actually leads perfectly into the question. Um, Mike, in your view, is the God you worship? all-powerful. There is no power except his, and there can be no power beyond his, and to whatever extent there is power, he has it all. That's a classical definition of, of a God. I'm asking if you accept that God is all-powerful. Of course I accept it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. You, you knew the answer, right? Well, I didn't when you said that's a classical definition. I thought maybe you had another. That's why I uh, followed up. Well, I mean, most by most people's definition, God, whatever one means is an all-powerful being. Um, no, in fact, we, we, we just had a polytheist on the show. And look, it doesn't matter. Here is why I ask. When a child is conceived, or whatever means, does God design that person at the moment of conception? Is every person somehow designed by God? Yes, it's in the seed. Okay, that's fine. Here is my problem. Given the state of the world today, would you say that there, when, when people die en masse today, whatever the rate of death is in, in the world, would you say there are more people going to heaven today than were going to heaven at some point in the past? Well, I don't think I ever thought of that question as a Christian, Andrew. That's a tough one. Well, there are more Christians today than there have ever been in the history of the world. Okay, well, now, are all Christians going to heaven? Is everyone that professes going to heaven? I'm just going by what the Bible says. If you Thing. I don't know the eternal this the eternal state of everyone's soul. So you ask an impossible question. I told you the, the I'm Bible asking says for your that. opinion based well, on the theology opinion. that you understand. If you profess in your and believe, there's got to be fruit to that tree too. So that's a whole other discussion. But Jesus said that as well. Tree by their fruit. Here's the reason that I bring that. I was contemplating your answer about design over the course of this show. And it seems to me, if there is a cosmic designer, he is not even as good as human designers. And the reason for that is this. When we design something, we have ways of testing its faults. Some things we test to destruction, if you will. And when things break, we look at them. And if we need them to do better, we go back to the drawing board. And that iterative design philosophy leads to better and better technology. And it seems very much to me that if there's a Christian God, he's had at least 6,000 years to start getting it right. And I don't see that it's 
right from the perspective that I used to hold. It certainly doesn't sound like it's right from the perspective you hold. What's not right? There don't appear to be enough people going to heaven, did there? I mean, God said, you know, the New Testament, the idea is God wants everyone. That's clearly not happening. And he said it. Where, where know, does it say by, that? By the, you've not read the passage, God is not willing for anyone to perish. Mm-hmm. You have. Okay, good. So my point is that if there are people going to hell, and by usual Christian tradition, you may certainly have a different view. Orthodox Christian tradition suggests that there are a lot more people going to hell than going to heaven. And that that suggests to me that the Christian God is not even a good iterative design. That's not a position I hold, but if you want to go further into that, but I do not. Sure, go ahead. Is this 1 Timothy 2 you're talking about, Andrew? No, no, the position about how many people are going to be saved, because I believe that when God promised Abram, Abram that his uh, offspring would be like the stars in the sky and the stand, sand on the seashore, that doesn't sound like a tiny minority of humanity. But what I will share with you, something that uh, to me is a, is a bedrock presupposition whenever we start talking about these great moral issues in heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. There's a verse in the 30, Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So I can tell you the answer to a lot of your questions is I don't know. I have no idea. I trust him as the judge of all the earth to do right. If, if well, I I'll tell you, if I thought there was a him, I don't think I would trust him the way you do. Well, that's that's fair. We all see things differently and come to different conclusions. Mine is a, a, what I believe is an orthodox, orthodox, traditional Christian position that I've held for 44 plus years and um, pretty convinced of it, as you can probably tell. Yes, we've, I've been trying to pull back the curtain. Maybe I'm the wrong podcast host. I've tried to pull back the curtain on the epistemology. Maybe I'm the wrong guest. No, look, I, 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 I don't know. I really um, well, don't say that, guests, please, Mike. Right, well, <laughs> it's a little late into it, right? Unbelievable. It's the you know, it's our responsibility to try to do the best we can mm-hmm. to get to a ground where we've got some agreement. That's actually what this show is about. To try to find those things on which we can all agree. Well, we, and, we were successful in a very little bit. <laughs> yeah, there were some epistemological points. Matthew, I don't have much uh, much else that reaches the bottom of the page for me. Do you have some final thoughts? Well, I did do some searching when you were talking. I don't know if this is what you're thinking of, Andrew, but I did find mm. 1 Timothy chapter 2, where there's a couple of verses which says, this is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Yes. Is that the kind of thing that you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah although that, it wasn't it wasn't Timothy that I had in mind, but I can't. But I that, can't that quite when people interpret that verse, they generally take all to mean each and every. And Paul's use of the word all in, in theological contexts about salvation and different things. I can't explain it all here in a minute or two, but it doesn't always mean all. So I would look at that as all his people that he came to save. Because God makes distinctions and he chooses. We're made in his image, so it kind of makes sense. We choose, he chooses, right? So when he chose Abraham out of 
everyone in the whole world. He didn't choose everyone else. And so that's kind of how I look at it. So my view on that is this, and, and always has been, if an English speaker has to learn Greek to be able to trust the plain words written, then the idea of Christianity is at its start a lost cause. Now, as it turns out, I took Greek, and I think you're on the wrong foot, suggesting that that passage doesn't read just as simply as it does. But I don't think it's important. I don't think it's important because the vast majority of Christians will never learn Greek. And if they have to, it is beyond the capacity of many. Why? Because the ability to learn a new language substantially changes after childhood. In fact, after very early childhood, three or four years old. And so if we have to resort to, well, what Paul really meant was something that we can't read plainly, then I think it's a non-starter for most listeners. Well, it's <laughs> so whenever you have a text of anything, there's something that one has to do in interp- interpretive work. So you, you could say that's the plain meaning, but there's a context in which it is. There's a theology in which it's placed. So you can take that text out of context because you're taking one verse. Reading one verse and describing it does not necessarily mean that it is out of context. That is absolutely not true. And in fact, you have referred to single verses in this show. So if you're right, every time you've done that, you've done it out of context. Andrew, you just you you're being contentious because I'm of course I'm taking some verses. No, I don't know how to even explain it at this point. But everything you say is to prove a point that I'm wrong. And that's how you come across to me. Whether that's your intention, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is is that interpreting a text can't be done one verse at a time. That doesn't mean I can't not. So what you're saying is I have to, every verse I use in the Bible, I have to give an extensive argument about the context wait, and the history of wait, everyone. No, I'm actually saying exactly the opposite. What, like I, what, what I just defended was using that particular verse. And you said that I'm the one taking it out of context. That's how we got here. I and I replied, And I replied to that that just because one verse is being used does not mean that it's out of context. You took one verse, one word, and then the plain quote, you said plain meaning of the text, and, and, and that's what you said, and then therefore true. Christianity is a failure, more people are going to hell than heaven, etc. I appreciate you having me on and being able to discuss these things. I'm not trying to put you on the wrong foot. This show is about trying to understand how people get to God. This is not a show where I'm out to prove you wrong. This has been a show where Matthew and I have both hoped that you could prove yourself right. I don't think I can. I never said I could. I, that's not, not why I'm here. That decision, you guys, you, you guys have a lot invested in time and your previous life and experiences, which color, just like you were telling me mine do, color how you see things today. What it's, it's fair coming from both of our experiences. Your experience disposes you towards one direction, mine another. They're both valid. And someone's open to talking to what I have to say. Hey, great. I think on this show, my intention, I hate debates, by the way. I wanted to tell you that like when the first come on. I've never watched them. I watched one or two of my life. I just don't like them because you have two people that disagree and they're just going to go. And maybe they're valuable to some people. But I just share like Matthew was sharing his experience and I 
I don't discount that. I don't, I don't want to be offensive to Matthew and say, your, your experiences aren't valid and you didn't struggle and this isn't painful because I don't believe that. I mean, we're all in this together because I just finished reading Ecclesiastes. We're all under the sun. My Christian perspective is none of this is easy. It's hard. And there's not necessarily any easy answers. And there's a lot of, you read the scripture, one of the things about uninvented that I talk about is God never makes it easy for people, ever. The hidden God, you used that word earlier, he seems to do that. Right there in the pages of the Bible, it's like people are confused and doubt and frustrated and don't believe and rebel. And it's so real because that's what we all go through. So, you know, I I appreciate your time and putting up with me. Matthew, so, are we down to the final character? Nearly. What I was going to do is, before I hand over to Andrew to to wind up, is thank you for that, Mike. I appreciate that. And yet, sometimes trying to talk across uh, the table when we have very different perspectives is difficult. I grant that. So just before I hand over to Andrew to give you the final wind down, tell our listeners and tell us, because we haven't talked about it a huge amount, about your book and what motivated you to the book. And if people want to hear my thoughts on your book, there's a podcast they can go to to listen to that. Well, thank you. So when I became a Christian in college, we called it born again at the time, born again Christian. The Christianity I was born again into was somewhat narrow and constricted and a lot of ways legalistic, a lot of rules and things like this. And then I came across Francis Schaeffer's The God Who Is There, and he's a Christian apologist died in the 84 or something like that. And I found out there were rational, logical, reasonable, philosophical, historical arguments for the veracity of Christianity. So that was my introduction to apologetics and so on. And then I did more reading. I went to seminary and learned about it there. And again, I've always, I only believe in Christianity because I believe it's true. And I believe there's evidence for it. Take that for what you will. That's why, and that's why I've taught my children all their lives. We believe this because this is true not because it makes you a better person, a better parent, wealth and riches, nothing. It's because we believe it's true. And there's evidence for that. So I got involved in some business and this and that, and I didn't really continue reading much. And I got into an encounter with a coworker in 2009, and I, I did a horrible job of any kind of apologetics. And I may still not be very good at it. But in 2015, a young woman, I read this article. I don't know if we talked about this on Unbelievable, but she grew up in a Christian home. Very committed, no doubt about that. Went off to college, UVA, University of Virginia, and lost her faith like that. And it sort of ticked me off because I said that would never happen to my children. And so from 2009 to 2015, I'd done a lot listening to zillions of podcasts and reading apologetics works. And so I said, I'm going to write a blog post about that. Then I decided to write a book, how I did this with my children, which is the persuasive Christian parent, how to build an enduring faith in you and your children. So I did that. And in the middle of studying all this, I came across this idea that you, this specific story or verse in the Bible, whatever passage could not be made up, invented. And it was so powerful for me over time as I kept reading the Bible, it was like, wow, this, there's a certain verisimilitude to what's going on here, meaning it reads real. So then I decided to write the book, which was then me grappling through, you know, the stuff we talked more about on the Unbelievable podcast. And, and listeners could go there if they want to get more into that stuff that's how i became an author and that's how i decided to write it and because i you know I'm, i believe it with as, as much as a human being can believe something i believe that okay thank you mike there'll be a link in the show notes to the unbelievable episode andrew take us out also if we can 
include a link in the show notes to the episode with Phil. It was referred to a couple of times, probably worth probably worth including that, even though it's our own back catalog. At least the listeners will have to dig for it. Yeah, look down, listeners. It will be there. I would love to. I'll listen. Oh, please do. In fact, there should be another link in the show notes, folks, to Skydive Phil's YouTube channel. The information from real physicists, cosmologists, and astronomers that do this stuff professionally every day is there on his channel. His content is worth looking at. Mike, as always, here on Still Unbelievable, the last thing that we ask of our Christian guests is, if they have one, to tell us about their favorite Bible character and why that character is their favorite. So there's quite a few characters. So if we get apart from Jesus, which would be the obvious answer, you just have to love Peter because um, he just acts, doesn't think, which I'm guilty of <laughs> as well, uh, um, that he just, he's so, I, there's a P word, I can't remember the word. He's, you know, he just does things and he's out there and he's bold and he makes mistakes and he says very stupid things and he gets rebuked by Jesus numerous times and and he's just a very unique character and what's powerful about his life is that he denies even knowing christ and jesus forgives him and becomes the leader of the early church and uh that's a powerful uninvented story to me okay thank you haven't we just had a peter as well i think we i think we did maybe two shows ago uh that would be justin yes yeah that would uh we'll have to double check (laughs) I'll tell you, Mike, um, I identified with Peter, too, but maybe for a different reason. I always thought, uh, you know, that dude's pretty cool. He got to use a sword in public <laughs> against a Roman soldier, and he managed to walk away. So. <laughs> I get your point. <laughs> oh, that was nicely played. That was nicely played. <laughs> very good yes spoilers because if you're listening to this listeners you will have already heard it but spoiler for mike our next episode will be the episode where we're grilling justin nice and uh, uh, and and i'll (laughs) you'll get a good grilling right but it's a good show for the listeners and and hopefully for the participants when everyone has a view that they're willing to defend strongly and i thank you for that genuinely Listeners, thank you for once again taking the podcast off-ramp to Still Unbelievable. Still Unbelievable is a product of Reason Press, and if you'd like to reach out to us about this show or any other show, if you'd like to ask us a question or give us a request, you can reach us at reasonpress at gmail.com and for Matthew Taylor and the wonderful Mike Virgilia. We thank you. And until next time, reason. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.